It is good to be back with you. We had a good time away, but we definitely missed our people here at Abundant Life. And as we spent time away, it was a reminder to me how much we need our Sunday gatherings as the people of God. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series, which is Church in 3D, because there's really three main dimensions to church life. There is the up vertical dimension, which is our relationship to God individually, but also corporately as we worship Him, right? Everything flows from the up dimension to the other dimensions, right? If the up dimension, the vertical dimension is not right, then the inward and outward dimensions will not be right. So the inward dimension is the fellowship that we have together as the family of God. When we come together to support one another and challenge one another to be faithful to Jesus in these crazy times, right? The outward dimension is our relationship to the world outside these walls. These three dimensions, Jesus had in his life and as his bride, as his body, we are to follow in his footsteps so that we might be the vehicle in which God continues to work in the world. So, in order for us to consider and think about that vertical dimension, um, we're going to read Psalm 73. Now, just one note, I realize what Brandon said is true that worship is primarily about God, right? It's, it's recognizing, responding to His grace and His goodness and giving Him the praises that, he, that He's due. He, he has given us the breath we breathe. He sustains our life. Every good gift we have in our life ultimately comes from Him who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so worship is primarily about Him. But God is so good and so generous that when we worship him, there is great impact on us. And so I'm going to talk about the impact on us this morning. Okay, so let's read Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. Um, let's check it out. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from common human burdens, they are not plagued by human ills, therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence, from their callous hearts comes iniquity, their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. 
Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Okay, so this psalm... um, (laughs) I just really have come to appreciate it. It's, it's actually become one of my favorite uh, for multiple reasons. Hopefully I'll be able to express some of those uh, succinctly and clearly to you this morning. In terms of looking at this as why Sunday mornings is important, let me offer you these uh, ideas. Our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings give us an a- avenue to express our pain and doubt. God uses them to touch us with his grace. God gives us revelation about the true story of the world that he is writing. God unmasks our pride, reminds us that he is still the best foundation to build a life on, and reminds us that although his grace is free to us, it is super costly for him. So let's look at each one of these thoughts here. The first is, in the worship gatherings of God's people, we can bring our pain and doubt. I feel for Asaph because he's really struggling with envy, right? Envy is when you want what somebody else has and you despise them for having it. It's jealousy on steroids because jealousy is just, I want what somebody else has. I don't necessarily despise them for having it. Envy, you despise them. Okay, that's the difference. And the reason that I just feel for Asaph is because, guess what? I struggle with envy. And if you're being honest, honest, you struggle with envy. C.S. Lewis, he talks about the pride in our hearts that we just don't want what other people have. We want what other people have and we want it more. We are naturally competitive in our sin-influenced state, which leads to this envy. I mean, how many times have you maybe looked at another person's home and said, man, house it looks like it looks like straight out of like like Joanna Gaines lives there right man if we had that we'd be happy or you look at somebody else's marriage man they just seem to get along so well they seem happy and joyful boy it must be nice to have that or you look at somebody else's kids and you're like man they're always achieving they're good looking right they're well behaved they're athletic i'm i'm looking into boarding schools for my kids next summer right (laughs) or look at her she's got this job that pays really well she loves her job she seems so happy must be great to be here. My, my job stinks. I hate it. 
Like I get on Sunday night, I start getting anxious and depressed, right? Or, man, look at the vacations they get to take. Those vacations are like in my dreams. I'll never be able to take those and they don't even seem grateful for being able to take them. Look at that guy. He drives an amazing navy blue minivan and he has an awesome Intex raft boat. Like, why can't I be that guy? I'm actually considering selling these things so people don't get so envious of me all the time. Funny story, real quick, side note, this has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, okay? Um, so we, we went to Lake James in North Carolina, big lake. Uh, it's like 140 feet, 150 feet deep, right? So I convinced Mary and the boys and I to put our 12-foot Intex raft boat, $250, in at the boat ramp and then drive. It took, because I have a trolling motor that goes two and a half miles per hour. It took us 45 minutes, maybe an hour to get where our lake house was. And literally, I, I mounted a fish finder on this bad boy. Like we were in 140 foot of water. Wow. Us four, we had this big, huge Rubbermaid tote for all of our fishing gear. People in thousands of dollars, boats, zooming past us, causing these waves that were making us. It was like an episode of like Peter and Jesus, and Jesus is walking on the water, and there was a storm, like Mary thought she was gonna die multiple times. She was freaking out. We made it, we made it. People were probably thinking we were trying to smuggle something into North Carolina, is what I was, that's, the, that's what it looked like. Like I said, nothing to do with the sermon. But we live in this culture where it is always like seeking to make us envious. I mean, think about everybody's putting their best foot forward, aren't they? And they're trying to hide so badly and conceal their weaknesses and flaws. And so you see all these humble brags is what we call them, right? You'll see on social media, so blessed to be with my you know gorgeous husband and wonderful kids in Hawaii on vacay right so blessed and honored and humbled to win salesperson of the year again right so honored that my daughter got a full-ride scholarship to play softball at Clemson right so grateful and humbled that I graduated at the top of my class so grateful and humble so blessed right we love to make people envious of us and we struggle with being envious of other people you know you do and our culture is fantastic at perpetuating the envy that exists in our world now I even feel for Asaph even more because not only were these people, these, these people that Asaph was envious of, not only did they brag about their accomplishments, but they did it without the humility. Uh, Asaph says that they wore their pride and their arrogance like a necklace. You know, when you see a person, think of running into Mr. T. I mean, what's, what's the first thing you're going to notice other than his amazing... Uh, arms and figures. We're watching different strokes right now as a family. Mr. T made a guest appearance, just so you know. Remember the show? What you talking about, Willis? You were right. Come on. 
If you don't remember it, go look it up. Great show, right? Anyways, you're going you're gonna to see his necklaces, his gold chains. These people that Asaph was envious of, they were proud. They were arrogant. They were saying, the reason I have the stuff that I have is because I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm better looking than you. I'm wiser. I'm more intelligent. Look at what I achieved, achieved for myself. And we can look down our nose at these people, these arrogant braggarts, but guess what? How often with the good things in our life do we take credit for them? Oh, we worked hard. That's why I was able to accomplish this. What did you work hard with? <laughs> Everything, all the gifts that God has given you. How can you take credit for it, right? Now, what made it worse? These people that Asaph was envying, they were arrogant, they were boastful, but you know what? They were also wicked. They had what they had because they were oppressing the weak. They were taking advantage of those who were on the margins of society. They were profiting from them. And so Asaph, he is struggling. He's struggling. He's got this envy. He's got this injustice that is swirling around in his mind that he's seeing and he's experiencing. And the question is, what did Asaph want? What did he want that these other people had? Well, our passage tells us they had comfort, they had wealth, they had power, they had plenty of influence as their words went out through the earth and their people just absorbed it in like they were in a desert and somebody handed them a Gatorade. Like these people had influence and power and wealth and ease. They were living a life of ease. Asaph wanted this. They were the social elites of Asaph's day. Now, before we get too judgmental about Asaph, it's, it's worth considering these questions. Who are you envious of? Who do you tend to get in the comparison trap with? What desires of yours are going unmet? So think about that. Now, this is something for us to keep in mind. Envy unchecked can rapidly lead to doubt. Envy unchecked can rapidly lead to doubt. Because what Asaph was doing, he's looking around and he's like, these wicked people have what I want. Here I am living a virtuous life. You know, Asaph was not without sin. We know that. I'm sure there's tons of sin in his life. But generally speaking, he was doing the good Christian thing and living the good Christian life. He was generally morally upright, right? And he's looking around and he's like, look, I'm doing all of this. And I'm sitting here suffering. I am afflicted while those wicked people are doing what they're doing. And they have what I want. And so this envy, unchecked, led to doubt for Asaph. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God is not just. Maybe he is not good, as verse 1 says, to those who are pure in heart. Maybe... God doesn't even exist because they're mocking God. They're saying, like, who God's, God doesn't know what we're doing. 
And if, you know, they're mocking him. And so maybe they're right because nothing bad seems to be happening to these wicked people. Maybe God doesn't exist. Am I the one living a lie? All these sacrifices I am making to serve God, are they worth it? Right? Now, if you think you're above getting into a spot where Asaph was operating in, full of envy, full of doubt, uh, think again, because Asaph, Asaph's uh, spe- uh, um, spiritual pedigree was far greater than probably, I think, well, I know for sure any of us are gonna, would, uh, would attain. He was one of David, King David's chief musicians, one of three, if I, if I remember correctly from my study. And he was a chief musician when Israel was a world superpower under King David. He is an author of scripture. Scholars think he wrote 12 Psalms, this being one of them. Doubt can come to any of us at any time. We can be overcome with negative emotions so badly that it just makes the truth that we know in our heads feel just completely unreal. You're not immune to this. If Asaph wasn't, you're not. I like what J.D. Greer um, had to say, has to say about doubt as it applies to this particular psalm. Because you've got to realize Asaph was on the brink of throwing in the towel with his faith. In the beginning of the psalm, it talks about his foot almost slipped off of the path. He's talking about the path of faith. He was in a major, he was in a major faith crisis. And he was about to, he was on the brink of saying, I'm done. Okay? J.D. Greer says this about doubt. Doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of the world. Doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of the world. So, what do we do when we're confronted with just negative emotions that are overwhelming and when we're confronted with doubts, serious doubts? What do we do? Well, another reason why I like Asaph so much is because he actually does the right thing with his doubts and negative emotions. So, let me explain this to you. Um, He does not handle them the way that most people handle them. One way is, I'll tell you this, most conservative church-going people, um, the way they handle their doubts and their negative emotions is, don't doubt, just believe. Just believe. Like, as doubt is this horrible, unchristian sort of thing to experience. Just believe. Doubt's a sin. Doubt is the opposite of faith. Don't doubt. And those negative emotions, like good Christians don't have like envy. So, and often legalistic conservative Christians are operating in this mode of if I do the right things and I check the right boxes, then God will bless me. And so how am I going to be honest about my doubts and my negative emotions? Because then, well, God, I mean, God probably won't bless me. That's unhealthy, and if you handle negative emotions and doubt like that, it'll do all kinds of damage to your soul. The other way that 
people in the world handle doubts and negative emotions is the liberal, secular way of handling them. Which is, your doubts and your feelings especially, they're sovereign, they're supreme. And if you feel as if God is unjust, then He must be unjust. Trust your instincts, trust your gut. It must be true. And so you have the conservative folk that say, feelings are unreliable. They're always unreliable. They should, they, they cloud clear thinking. And then you have the liberals that say, feelings, <laughs> they should drive you. What I love about the Bible, and what I love about God and His Word, is it offers us a third way, the right way, the healthy way to handle doubt and negative emotions. The Bible teaches us we allow those negative emotions and doubts not to, we don't suppress them. We don't let them either, you know, rule the roost and, and direct us completely. We allow them to drive us deeper into God and his people. That's what we do with our doubts and our negative emotions. This is what we see Asaph do because in verse 17, there is this major turning point in the psalm. Where Asaph, what does, he, what does he do? He enters the sanctuary. What does it mean that Asaph entered the sanctuary? It means he came to a corporate worship gathering. He came there with all his doubt, his negative emotions. He went into the worship gathering of God's people. And here's what we see happen. We see wonderful things happen, and the rest of these points are going to go, they're going to be way more brief. But I want to tell you, if you're here today, and you you're overcome with negative emotions, you're really going through a really difficult spot, and you have serious doubts about, is God real? Is He good? Is the sacrifice and following Him worth it? Guess what? You're welcome here. You're in the right spot. Welcome. Guess what? You're not abnormal. I've been there. It's part of the Christian experience. And we can help. Alright, so what does God do on Sunday mornings? When we come together. Here we go. In the worship gatherings of His people, God touches us with His grace. Verse 21. Asaph is saying, My heart was grieved, I was embittered. And then he goes on to say, before God, he was senseless and arrogant, ignorant. He was like a brute beast. Now, when you think of a beast, you think of just instinct, right? They're just acting out of instinct. There is no thought. It's just response. And so what Asaph was saying is like, I just laid it all out before God. I told him all my negative emotions. Like, I, essentially, like he attacked God. That's what brute beasts do. And then check this out. How did God respond to Asaph? Did God condemn him, shame him? No. Look what Asaph stated in verse 23. God held him by the right hand. That's what God does. That's His grace to the doubter, to the one overcome with sorrow, depression, anxiety. He's holding them by the right hand. 
You never see God or Jesus responding to the doubter, which is complete like shame and guilt in the scriptures. Nope. Asaph, in his spiritual vertigo that he was experiencing, this disequilibrium, this, this discomfort, he goes into the worship gathering and he senses God holding him by his right hand. Now, we don't know what in the worship gathering, you know, what God used to give him this. But we do know that, you know, the scripture was taught, songs were sung. There is people-to-people interaction. And so I am guessing that it was one of those things and one of those, uh, through one of those means, God spoke to Asaph. If you are dealing with negative emotions and doubts, don't hold them back in worship. It is healthy to not hold them back and God will not reject you. Psalm after psalm attests to this fact. And actually, when you read the psalms, us modern people often are like taken aback. It's like, oh my goodness, they're so angry, they're so vengeful, they're so like, this is real faith. They're there for a reason. God wants us to know that this is what authentic faith looks like. This is what an authentic relationship looks like with them. That's why they're there. Number three, in the worship gatherings of God's people, God gives us revelation regarding the true story of the world. So there's a, a, a couple superficialities to Asaph's faith that God is using the doubt in, the, in the, this envy to completely obliterate. One is this. So even though Asaph was probably more mature than any of us, he still had chinks in the armor of his faith. And God, one of those is, if I do the right things, God will give me positive life circumstances. That's a fallacy. It's not true. God often does give us positive life circumstances. But there are plenty of times he doesn't. Why? Why is there suffering? Why is there adversity? God knows that our highest good is to become conformed to the image of the Son, and that process cannot happen without suffering and adversity. God would not be good if he only gave us positive life circumstances. And the reason is, is because he would be withholding from us the very thing that will lead to our healing and our transformation. I know that's cold comfort if you're in the midst of suffering right now, but it's true. It's nonetheless true whether we like it or not. And feel if it's true, right? Think about Jesus. Jesus, did he check all the boxes? Was he morally virtuous? Yeah, he was without sin. Did he have only positive life circumstances? No. He was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. He was brutally murdered. And he was sinless by wicked, wicked people. And yet, Hebrews 5.8 tells us that he learned obedience from the things he suffered. It helped him spiritually. I don't know how that works. I don't know. I've wrestled with that whole thought that Jesus had to learn anything. I don't know how it works. I just know Hebrews 5.8 tells us it. He learned obedience from his suffering. 
If Jesus was perfect in every way and yet still suffered, and he even grew through his suffering, what makes us think we are not going to suffer? You see, <laughs> you know who's really susceptible to falling into this trap if I do the right things? Then God's going to give me positive life circumstances? People like Asaph. You know what Asaph, did I tell you? I, I did tell you. He, he was a chief. He was leading worship. Sorry. Leading worship. It's so easy for people like me that work for a church or people on the mission field to be like, look at what I'm doing for you, God. You owe me. Look at the sacrifices I'm making. Okay? So we got to be careful. Here's the thing. When we are doing the right thing so that God will give us positive life circumstances, what we're really doing is we're viewing God as useful and not beautiful. That's from J.D. Greer. Do you view God as useful or do you view him as beautiful? There's a difference. In one view, God is simply a means to another end. In the other view, where God is beautiful, God is the end. He's the treasure, not just his goodies that he can give to us. All right, um, so another superficiality to Asa's faith that God was unraveling was that he was looking at the wealth and comfort and ease of those who were wicked, that he was envious of. And the reason he, it bothered him so much had to be because whether he wanted to admit it or not, he was looking to those things as the means by which he would be ultimately happy. We say this all the time here at Abundant Life, but if you're going to, looking to power, looking to wealth, looking to influence, looking to being beautiful, if those are the things where you're looking to for ultimate happiness, they won't fail you. Because what happens when the beauty fades? What happens when the stock market crashes? What happens when your health fades? What happens when you get canceled on social media? You have nothing. And even if you get those things that your heart is after, you will find that they can't deliver. They're ultimately going to leave you wanting. How many miserable, wealthy, powerful, influential Comfortable people are in the world. There are a ton of them. Why? Because those things can't deliver. You see, Asaph, if he would have got those things that he was envious of, he most likely would have missed the greatest treasure, and that is God himself. Garth Brooks is right. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. For sure. All right. One other superficiality to Asaph's faith and God in worship revealed this to Asaph is the destiny of the wicked and the destiny of those who have decided to follow God and, and Jesus. What's the destiny of the wicked? Eventually, justice will come and justice delayed is not justice denied. Asaph needed to know this. Eventually, God will return and he would settle accounts. And for those who continue to stiff-arm God and continue to commit cosmic plagiarism where they're just, you know, it was all me who produced this good in my life, God would eventually would reject them. They would spend an eternity apart from him, apart from all good, all beauty, all love, 
right? But for Asaph, God revealed to him in the worship gathering of God's people that he was destined for glory. Destined for glory. What does glory mean here? It means honor. God was telling Asaph, you are going to be exalted. You are going to be crowned. You're going to have honor. Verse 24 tells us that Asaph realized this, that God was going to receive him in glory. Whether he also realized in worship too, the true story of the world was that God was going to continue directing him, guiding him. He would be with him through the thick and thin of life, even the difficulty in the suffering. That his light and momentary afflictions would make way for an eternity of joy and glory. You see, God used the injustice, he used the negative emotions, he used the doubt to drive Asaph into an understanding of the true story of the world. All right, uh, real quickly, in the worship gathering of God's people, God unmasked our pride. If you think, all right, so Asaph's pride was this, just because he couldn't think of a good reason for his suffering didn't mean that there wasn't a good reason for it. When we say that there's no good reason for my suffering and God can't possibly have one, what we're saying is God is limited to what my brain can think up and imagine. And so we're shrinking God's brain and intellect and wisdom down to our pea-sized brain when we make that statement. And when Asaph went into the worship gathering of God's people, this became clear to him when he saw the, the future of the wicked and he saw his future. It's like all of a sudden, it's, oh, God's ways are higher than mine. I didn't know all that was going on behind the scenes, but God pulled back the curtain in worship and he gave me this revelation and I realized that he is good, he is wise, and actually he's a genius. And if I knew everything God knew, I would be doing things exactly the way God is doing them. And that's the problem. We don't know everything that God knows. We don't have the intel he knows. And that's why sometimes it just doesn't make sense to us or it doesn't seem right to us. But if we knew everything he knew, I guarantee we would decide to do everything exactly to a T the way that he does it. And even if we had the intel, we, would, we don't have the capacity to make sense of the intel that God has. All right. In the worship gathering of God's people, God reminds us he is still the best foundation to build a life upon. In verse 25 and 27, you see like Asaph is saying, who do I have in heaven but you? Asaph, he's looking at the alternatives. All right, if I ditch the faith, where do I go? Where do I go? What do I do? If I ditch, if you ditch Christianity, where are you going? Where are you going? And no matter where you go, guess what you're still going to have? Doubts. No matter what worldview you decide to land on, every worldview comes with its doubts, its own set of doubts. If you're an atheist, I've heard plenty of doubts of atheists. How do you make sense of beauty in the world if we're just this random accident, if we're just a collection of atoms and molecules? Then beauty doesn't exist. Love doesn't exist. How do you make sense of it, though? Because we know it's there. 
So there, there are, every worldview has its problems, which lead, you cannot prove any worldview with a hundred, you cannot prove it beyond, you know, with 100% certainty the way we can prove things in a science lab. So no matter where you go, you're going to have your doubts. So if you're leaving Christianity to get rid of doubts, think again. All right, last thing. In the worship gathering of God's people, God reminds us that his grace, although free to us, was costly for him. Part of what Asaph would have seen is the whole sacrificial system, right? When he went into worship. We've seen that in order for his sin to be paid for so that he could be forgiven and his relationship to God be restored, um, there was a cost. An animal had to die. And he would have known that ultimately, even if it was his animal... God provided that for him. We, where we're positioned in history, know that probably what Asaph didn't know is those animal sacrifices were all pointing to. They could only temporarily take away sin. Uh, the, the animal sacrifices were, were, were pointing to the spotless lamb, the son of God that would come, who would be that once and for all payment for our sins so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And although grace comes to us for free, it was extremely costly to God. And you think about it, Jesus, he entered and experienced the, the worst injustice, even worse than what Asaph was experiencing. And Jesus died by the hands of wicked men, very wicked men. And Jesus was demoted. And yet, why? So Asaph, because how can Asaph, who was a brute beast, receive this honor and glory that he said, that God said was coming to him? How does that work? How can God turn the brute beast of Asaph into the beauty? While the wicked people are going from beauty, they were made in the image of God, and they're increasingly becoming more and more beastly. How can that be switched for Asaph? The answer is because Jesus, he died for him, he died for us, so that we can go from beast to beauty. It's remarkable. And when we come and the gospel is represented to you every Saturday, you get to hear that again and again and again and again. That grace is free to you, but it was costly to God. Why? Because he is crazy about you. He loves you. We need that. We need to be reminded of that every week. Because everything in our world is telling us, you got to make a name for yourself. you got to earn it. you got to achieve it. you got to do more. Right? Okay. Let's take communion here. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your people. We thank you that uh, we have you that loves us so tremendously. That even in our negative emotions, in our doubts, even when there's parts of our negative emotions and doubts that are sinful, you are still so gracious to us. Even when we act like a beast before you. Thank you that you lead us by your right hand. And uh, we know that you're able to be gracious to us because you pay the ultimate price. So you could extend that grace. And we thank you and we remember it now as we take communion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.